the Fertility Podcast is here to help you understand more about your fertility and for the last eight years has published a lot of conversations with experts and people sharing their stories. It's now going back to its roots, giving you people's lived experiences once again to give you comfort in knowing there's a community of people who get it so you find commonality, be inspired and know you're not alone. Started by me, Natalie Silverman, a former patient, once I was pregnant after fertility treatment, I later joined forces with Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant, who is now your host. And here she is. Hi, welcome to the second episode of the new series of the Fertility Podcast. I hope you're doing well. Now, this intro for this episode actually comes from my bed. So if you hear a bit of rustling of duvet, I apologise. Let me explain why. So sadly, we um, ended up with a little bit of an experience we weren't expecting. We had a a trip down to Somerset for two nights in a teepee, glamping. Really excited about it. It was going to be a lovely, lovely trip. Had a nice outdoor kitchen, big teepee tent with a proper bed in it and a hot tub. So it's going to be a lovely, lovely couple of days just relaxing. It didn't go quite according to plan. Sadly, I wasn't very well. And the reason that I want to to talk about this is I developed a condition called sepsis, which is quite common, but it's, it's quite difficult to spot. And sadly, it can be life threatening. There has been some awareness raising about sepsis um, in the recent months, but I still think the message is still hard to to reach. And a lot of people don't understand the condition and certainly don't recognise the symptoms in themselves or others. So I I want to share my experience and use this platform that I have available to me to get this message across that maybe it might help you identify the symptoms in yourself or your loved ones. So I had an infection. I was on antibiotics felt it was being you know reasonably well treated I started to feel better before we went down to the glamping site sadly we had the first evening there I started to feel a bit unwell wasn't particularly hungry and then things got very bad very quickly that night so the symptoms of sepsis are that you can have a fast heart rate a very high temperature you might feel that you've got chills clammy skin vomiting shortness of breath, all of those things that I had. You can also go on to have a rash over the body and confusion, which luckily I didn't have at that point. And the reason why sepsis happens is that it occurs when your immune system has an extensive reaction to infection. It basically goes into massive overdrive, as mine really did. But the issue is that sepsis can be life-threatening. So it is serious. And that's why I wanted to share my experience so that it might help you going forward. I hope you never have to experience it, but at least you know about it. So my what happened to me is we ended up sadly in in hospital in Somerset for three nights. But I'm now home. I'm recovering well. I got great care from the hospital and I'm not doing anything. I've been told I've got to take a couple of weeks off work to rest and recuperate. So this is why this podcast intro is coming to you, as I said, from my bed. But enough about that. 
I will put a link in the show notes so that you can read a bit more about sepsis if you want to find out more. But moving on, I am absolutely delighted that in this episode, we are interviewing the lovely Sophie Martin. You might have heard of Sophie from social media as the infertile midwife. Sophie is a midwife and sadly she experienced a long fertility journey and tragically pregnancy loss, which she has shared her experiences beautifully on social media. But it's important to say that this episode does come with a trigger warning. We're talking about really sensitive issue of pregnancy loss. So if today you're not feeling particularly strong, please switch off. Come back to the podcast when you're feeling less vulnerable in a better place uh, and have a listen then to what Sophie says. But it doesn't need listening to today. If you're feeling that you can listen, then then carry on because I know you're going to really get a lot from Sophie's episode but be guided by how you're feeling today. So I spoke to Sophie uh, about a week after the independent pregnancy loss review was released so we also get her thoughts on that but let's bring Sophie in and let's get started. Hi Sophie welcome to the Fertility Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome now you'll have to remind me have you actually spoken on the podcast before? No, I haven't. My first time. Have you not? Oh, I couldn't remember whether perhaps Natalie had interviewed you in the past. but And so have you spoken on any other podcasts or is this your first experience? No, I've done quite a lot of other podcasts. But um, she did ask me to come on. The, Natalie asked me to come on the podcast. Um, but I was literally just about to give birth to Percy. So I, I couldn't do it. Uh, OK, yeah, yeah. I, 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 that's right. I seem to have some kind of memory that we were going to interview you at one point. So, But a few of the interviews I couldn't make, whatever, if I'm busy with work. So I didn't know whether um, that had gone ahead. But it's great to have you on here. And as I've already talked about before you've joined me, I always love having a good old chin wag with a fellow professional and you being a midwife and me being a fertility nurse, obviously the two are very, very similar. So it's great to have you from that point of view, but also to talk about your story, because this is what the podcast is all about. It's the ability to share stories real life stories because what I really want is people to find commonality in stories so that they don't they feel less alone and all but also that they feel inspired and that's why even though some of the subjects that we talk about on the podcast uh, can be difficult to listen to and hard-hitting there's always hopefully some positive spin on the situation so that people can take something away from listening to you and I absolutely know knowing your story which we're going to share in a few moments that that will absolutely be the case with you as well so let's start at the very beginning tell us about your story Sophie so I got married in 2016 and then in 2017 um, we started trying for a baby and I kind of quite quickly knew that it, it wasn't really going to happen for us. Um, so that first year was very stressful and we tried everything and I felt very kind of low and yeah, it was really hard. And eventually we went to our GP and they referred us to a gynae clinic, which obviously took months and there was, you know, delays in our appointment. It kept getting cancelled and eventually we made it to a gynae clinic and we'd had all our bloods and James had had his semen analysis and um, it turned out that I had low ovarian reserve and the doctor said oh well why I don't know why but he said let's do a laparoscopy just to make sure that there's nothing structurally wrong 
Um, but there's a nine-month waiting list for the operation and then there'll be a nine-month waiting list for a follow-up afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was looking at him thinking, you want me to wait 18 months before you even refer me on to a facility clinic? I don't think so. And so we decided that we were going to go privately because I didn't want to wait any longer. And actually it transpired that we would never have been eligible for IVF funding in our borough at the time. So they would have made us wait 18 months for then nothing. So I was really glad that I decided to go privately we had enough money for one round of IVF so we were like right we've got to do it and that's a real common experience isn't it at the moment particularly because of the pandemic I'm I don't know about you but I'm certainly seeing more and more women go privately and make that decision because they don't want to wait which is a really sad state of affairs sadly that's kind of where we are but you experienced that prior to the pandemic as well which is interesting just want to just pick up on something you mentioned there. You said that you just knew things weren't going to work out for you, that you were going to struggle to conceive. And I find that really interesting because you're not alone in saying that. A lot of women talk about the fact they just know, they just know there's something wrong. But what was that? What? Why did you think that? Where Where did that come from? So I, I, I mean, sounds, sounds kind of really vague, but I guess I'd always just felt like very hormonal, like that things weren't quite right. Okay. And that's that kind of female intuition, I think, isn't it, often? Yeah, I mean, I definitely knew that it wasn't going to happen for us. Interesting. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Um, so we, yeah, we chose a fertility clinic. We did some open days and we chose one and they said we could start straight away. So we jumped straight in there with our first round of IVF. Um, and it was a real eye opener because I responded really badly to the drugs. So I, at one, after like a week, I was only growing one follicle. I thought they were going to cancel the cycle. And I was so devastated because I was like, oh, failed at IVF. Like, Mm. I've literally completely failed my first round of IVF. And then, you know, there'll be no other options. That'll be it. We'll be done. Um, But some miracle occurred and I grew a few more follicles. To cut a long story short, I was very fortunate that we had one embryo that was ready on day five, which we transferred back. Um, And then nine days later, I did a pregnancy test and I was pregnant. So that felt very surreal because then I was a bit like, oh, that that was easy. Mm. It it was not easy, but, you know, I felt like, oh, maybe it wasn't that hard then. Maybe I wasn't really that infertile, but, you know, foolishly. So then a few, a week or so later, I think it was two weeks later, I started bleeding. um, And actually looking back, I definitely overreacted because it was, it was really very minimal amount of bleeding, but I took myself off to the early pregnancy unit where I worked. They were very kind and saw me um, and they scanned me and we were in the clinic room and the stalker was scanning me and um, she was asking me lots of questions and, you know, what day embryo was it, you know, day five embryo, how many embryos was it? And I was just one. She asked, when was it transferred? You know, asking all these questions. And I was like, I'm just doing really thorough. <laughs> um, and then she turned the screen round and there was two, um, which was one of those moments that you're like, wow, like this does not happen to people in real life. It was really, really amazing. Um, and my husband, James, had no idea what he was looking at. So I had to spell it out to him. Like there's two on the screen. Um, but yeah, so that was just, yeah, one of those moments that I'm just never going to forget. It was incredible. Mm. Um, and then that became the start of uh, incredible anxiety because I was yeah just very aware that you know identical twin pregnancy was very high risk and I was so anxious that something was going to go wrong I don't want to say that I knew something was going to go wrong but I was just incredibly anxious that something was going to go wrong Mm. Mm. Um, and I had horrendous morning sickness I had reflux pelvic girdle pain sciatica like it was like every symptom that you could possibly find I had it and then 
at the 20 week scan we found out that one of the twins had talipes which is a club foot mm. um, and I was very devastated by that um, which again when I look back I did not need to be quite so upset but I think because they were identical twins and then there was going to be this very noticeable difference in them mm. that it was I found it really, really upsetting. But then a week, a week later, I went into spontaneous labour, um, and then suddenly they both died because they were too, too premature. So yeah, that was completely devastating. And you've been so open sharing your story, both you know on Instagram, um, particularly, and you've not shied away from sh- from sharing absolutely beautiful images of Wilfred and Cecil, and that's been lovely to see how easy was that for you to to share those images well it actually felt really easy because I was very well not very used to I don't think anyone's used to it but as a midwife I've I've seen babies of that gestation before so it wasn't a surprise to me when they came out looking that way and and I did in the moments before I gave birth I said to James like James they're they're not going to look like normal babies don't be frightened because I was so worried that he would be repulsed by them obviously he wasn't but it is such a shocking image, but actually it's just two very, very tiny babies. That that is essentially what it is. Mm. Um and and he and like I had a friend, a very close friend, who said to me, I didn't think they were gonna look like babies because they were so early. And I was thinking, well, what was she thinking they were gonna look like? Like a blob? Like, of course they're babies, like, but I think we're so not used to seeing these images. And yes, they they are distressing images, but well, I, I don't think the images themselves are distressing. The boys are very peaceful and I think they are very beautiful, but it, it is a is a distressing kind of thing to think about. But I think, yeah, people actually don't have any idea what a very, very preterm baby looks like. And so I don't have any issue sharing them because I just think they're just the most beautiful little boys ever. Yeah. Um, and I think, not that we need to normalise it, but I think there's nothing to be ashamed of. Like, I, I wouldn't want anyone else to think that their babies were so unsuitable for public consumption like I'm not expecting everyone to share photos of their children on social media but I think people perhaps would be frightened to even show their own friends and family yeah yeah absolutely I can understand that and have you received any negativity for being that open or has it just been positivity that you've received I mean it's been like overwhelmingly positive and most people are just so lovely and say how how beautiful they think they are but I have had a couple of people who have trolled me in a very hideous way but that mm-hmm. was coming from their own place of deep sadness so Amazing. overall it, it's been yeah incredibly positive yeah yeah absolutely sadly I think whenever we lay ourselves bare on social media there's always going to be some of that which is difficult to to deal with but I think what you've done is totally raised awareness of baby loss um, and the difficulties that you went through and you've not shied away from it which is just fantastic that you've done that however I can imagine it's been really difficult sharing your story in that way as a midwife this is what I'm intrigued about professionally but how has your experience changed your practice or has it not how easy was it for you to go back to working as a midwife after what happened and has it changed your degree of empathy? I'm just intrigued to see how that might have changed your practice going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely changed my practice. I think that it's absolutely possible to be a really good midwife if you've never had children and also if you've never had infertility or baby loss. But I do think that there's certainly a nuance. Essentially, you can be very compassionate and not have lived through something. I, 
I don't think you have to have lived through something to be a good practitioner but I do think that there's just a, a different kind of level of understanding if you have lived through something I think that I very much misunderstood pregnancy after loss I think I misunderstood or even pregnancy after infertility like I kind of would think in my head sometimes or like you're you're pregnant now like you've done it it's all fine like it'll be fine and I didn't really understand that actually there would be a massive hangover for some people and myself included of like extreme anxiety because your body has failed you so much up to this point and so you have a disbelief that you're going to be able to sustain a pregnancy so I definitely had kind of lots of misunderstandings Um, and also I think I'm very very mindful of the language that I use as well now you know I'm not a perfect practitioner people get it wrong myself included all the time but I think that I really very much try to focus on the language that I use a lot more that's useful for you don't have to be a a practitioner to to be mindful of your language you know I think it's so important that we're all mindful of our language whenever we're talking about anything to do with fertility pregnancy loss aren't we so how how has that changed I always make a point of so if someone's had like a, a pregnancy loss not so much first trimester but like second and third trimester I'll just always ask the baby did you name the baby straight away mm-hmm. um because I think that just shows like um it, you're not just taking a history you're like taking an interest in that person's lived experience Mm. Um, because a lot of obviously being a midwife is you're trying to take a a detailed history or ascertain information but there's also a way of doing it which can be compassionate as well Mm. and so I always remember on my discharge papers after I had possession Wilfred it said late miscarriage and I was literally so offended by that because it was like I didn't have a miscarriage and also the late implied that I was just really rubbish at time keeping keeping like I couldn't even miscarry at an appropriate time so I really feel that I I would never use that term ever um, and just things like that where even though that might be like the common medical term I would perhaps shun yeah like I would use different terminology yeah absolutely I had a really interesting chat yesterday with um, an academic I may put you in touch with her actually who is doing a research project looking into language that we use with regards to fertility and pregnancy loss and how as we know there's so much blame in a lot of the language you know the term infertility insufficient failure all those words that just blame us further um and she's it's really interesting the work that she's, she's doing um and she's particularly focusing on term natural killer cells because the word killer kind of in in implies that our bodies are, are killing an embryo you know it's just horrendous the language but it's, it'll be quite interesting I think her project and and she's hoping then to be able to educate practitioners to actually use a different language so it will be a, a good connection I will definitely introduce you so has it has it been triggering for you going back to work as well yeah, of course it is. I mean, there's not a single role that you can do in the maternity services that would not be potentially triggering. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was really craving kind of normality after I'd had the twins, so I was desperate to go back to work. Obviously, nothing about my life was ever going to be normal again after that point, but I wanted to kind of get back to my normal life. Um, but, you know, those first few months um, when I was looking after women who had the same due date that I would have had, that was really hard. Mm. Um, I still find looking after twins really hard. Like I would prefer not to do that. I, if I, if that's an option, I would always defer. Yeah. That's one of my colleagues. Yeah. Um, sometimes that's not an option, and and you just have to deal with it. Um, I think when and Kate, you probably will find this as well. But 
when you work in the NHS, a lot of the time there's things that you don't want to do, but you just have to get on and do them. Um, and that's that's like the NHS attitude is like, okay, well, no one else is going to do it, so I have to. And so that just means that you have to bury all of your emotions and just give yourself to the patient. And so it didn't really feel like that much of a change because that's something that everyone in the NHS does all the time. It's like, well, I have to put the patients first. So that means everything about me goes second. Yeah, and we're experienced, aren't we, in, you know, not taking everything home. We've learned that over the years to to deal with those emotions sometimes. And, I, you know, this still happens to me now. Sometimes you will take something home because it's so devastating and upsetting that you can't forget about it. But often we're able to leave that in the work situation, um, which is, you know, what we're trained to do. It's taken us years probably to to, to know that skill and, and learn that skill. But it's 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 really important. When it comes to coping and going forward because obviously what we've not said is that whilst Wilfred and Cecil are a huge part of your family you've had a happy ending so tell us about your happy ending and that might not be the ending in fact I know it's not the ending but you've you've had a a great addition to your family tell us about that yes so after I had Cecil and Wilfred there was lots of other complications and I had a retained placenta for like 11 weeks had to have other operations it was and then I did six more rounds of IVF um, and eventually had my son Percy two years ago. And yeah, he definitely has, you know, brought a lot of sunshine back into my life. And he's just really lovely, lovely, happy little boy. Um, and since then, we've done four more rounds of IVF to try and give him another brother or sister, which has been unsuccessful. So it's an ongoing struggle. But um, yeah, he is just the most wonderful little boy and I'm so grateful to have him. Absolutely. It was lovely to see the pictures of Percy celebrating his second birthday the other day on Instagram. So it's fantastic. He looks like you. That's what I, I could see from, <laughs> from those pictures as well. So having gone through rounds of treatment, a, you know, a lot, a huge amount of rounds of IVF, struggled with infertility, had the terrible loss that you experienced and you've experienced that as a family, you know, you and your husband, but also the wider family. What advice can you offer to people on how to cope with all of that? Because you mentioned about, and, and it's something I hear all the time, about pregnancy after loss and how difficult that is. Or, you know, the, the anxiety of being pregnant and and how horrendous that is. And then you that's a normal anxiety for everybody once they get pregnant after having infertility, but also pregnancy after loss add to that the fact that you're a medical professional you've got all this knowledge I know that makes us worry 10 times more because we know what what could go wrong and it's horrendous but how have you coped as a family your immediate family and your wider family and what advice could you give somebody that might be going through either infertility or have sadly experienced pregnancy loss on how to cope so it's, I mean, it's really, really individual in terms of how to cope. I'm, and also, like, I don't always feel like I did cope. I mean, I got through it, but I don't feel like I coped because I don't feel like I managed it all, you know, with ease. Um, but pregnancy after loss was just one of the hardest things I have 
ever ever done it was just nothing short of horrendous basically um and I was really fortunate that my family were so supportive I mean I actually don't think I could have got through it without everyone rallying around because at one point I was so anxious that I couldn't be left by myself and so my family basically had a rotor of who was going to look after Sophie each day um which was obviously just like a huge strain for every it was like a lot of effort I feel like literally everyone carried me over the finish line um so it was like a huge investment for everyone in my family. So my husband was working really long hours in London. So then each of my other family members would have to take it in terms of look after me. Um, like my brother and my sister and my parents. I, I just felt like a child essentially, but it was what I needed to get through. Um, and so I just feel so fortunate, but it was obviously extremely exhausting for all of them as well. Just really lean on the people that are there to support you because I, yeah I don't think I could have done it without of them without them but I do think as well I just don't want to underestimate yeah just the huge investment like the huge emotional toll it would have taken on everyone mm. and I think like baby loss and pregnancy loss they don't just affect it wasn't just me and James that lost our children it was our parents lost their grandchildren mm. you know our siblings lost their nephews and so the ripples were actually really much wider than I would have anticipated and I think that needs to be kind of actually spoken a lot about more and and actually really nicely as well like on Cecil Wilfred's birthdays one some of my mum's friends they'll like give her flowers and stuff like that because it's it's her loss too and and I think that's really special so I don't know if I have any advice because it's just so individual but I would just say like lean lean on each other where you can mm, absolutely and I guess you're you know you're really mindful of of the fact that that was hard on your extended family because um, I think sometimes we we might squirrel ourselves away just to deal with it as a couple and not think about the impact on the wider family but you're right you know it's, it's really difficult I, I remember years and years ago my sister's um, 18 years older than me and sadly she lost two babies um, a little boy called Matthew and then a few um, a couple of years later a little girl called Claire and I was only young I think I was um, maybe 11 when Matthew um, died and then 14 uh, th- uh, 12 13 when Claire died and I still feel that loss as you know my si- as my sister um, I still feel the loss that she experienced but also the loss that I experienced because it was such a wanted nephew and a wanted niece I was desperate to have that um, in our family and then losing them both was incredibly hard and I still remember that trauma um, and also do you think um it also like ruins pregnancy because now like and I, I don't want to project onto you but like I imagine for my sister who's younger than me she's not got any children how is she now approaching having a baby knowing that Absolutely. you know myself has had such a, a rough time of it and so the repercussions are just not it, it's actually just way further reaching than you think so like it's not just the loss it it just affects everything so like it takes away the innocence around pregnancy it takes away like the excitement because you've always got that fear or that kind of Mm. anticipation in the back of your mind it did I was very fearful um with my with my first baby Oliver and and he actually stopped growing at uh, 34 weeks so that was causing me a huge amount of anxiety because of what my sister went through and actually it also caused her anxiety when I was going through that because it all brought back everything and was really triggering for her so yes it was it you're absolutely right it is so far reaching I think it's really important for us to as you mentioned have greater awareness about the wider family for sure so 
Moving on a little bit, just recently, literally last week, the um, Independent Pregnancy Loss Review was published, which was amazing work by Zoe Clark-Coates and Samantha College. I'm so pleased to see it because I know it's been five years in the making and they've worked so hard to to get this out there because there needs to be some reform, there needs to be this review. We need to be supporting women and men who experience pregnancy loss in a totally different way. So it's great to see this out there. Have you had a chance to read it and what are your thoughts? Yeah, I have read it. Um, and I think it's much, much, much needed. And, you know, um, Zoe has done, uh, and Samantha, but I've done just incredible job. I mean, there was so many recommendations on there, um, all of which are very much needed. Um, I mean, I guess and maybe you feel the same, Kate, as a practitioner, but on a practical level, I'm like, how the hell are these going to be implemented? <laughs> because obviously we all know that the NHS has got zero pennies to its name. Mm-hmm. And, but also that doesn't mean that we shouldn't, be setting out these standards of course we should and then it's the you know people in government's job to figure out the hows but um you know there was recommendations about early pregnancy units having greater access absolutely like women in early pregnancy at the moment often have nowhere to turn to because they're not in you know you're not you're too early for the maternity services um you're not appropriate for A&E necessarily your GP doesn't want to see you so where do you go so all of those services are absolutely much needed and um, but the main thing that I'm so so pleased about which is I think Zoe's little baby is the certificates or, um, for, yeah, and I just I'm thrilled about that I think that's just incredible yeah so the certificates are that you can apply and apply in retrospect to have a certificate of I mean, what, what they're calling it a certificate of I guess of birth just to, to, to mark the fact that you have had your baby and sadly, your baby has not survived. But that to mark that loss, I think, is so important because often it's it's forgotten about. And I know that you know, and certainly I remember working when I worked in in Guinea, and would we'd be dealing with babies that were born up to eighteen weeks. Obviously, after eighteen weeks, they would go to to um, maternity services, um, and there there was no way of marking them and I, you know this is going to be difficult to to hear but often those babies were born i'd be delivering those babies in a side room and then those babies are obviously born not breathing and then we just put them in the sluice and they're there just this this baby that is is lying in the sluice and we we would do our very best we would dress them we would then take them to um their parents to show them if they wanted to see them but then they're just taken away and there there was no way of that individual marking their loss and it's so hard and I, I would often talk about okay how could how could you mark the loss a rose bush something you know that you can do but that's still not appropriate it's not enough so now to actually have something physical I think is so important um, and I'm so pleased that that has been agreed I think were the 70 points and they've all been accepted which was amazing but I I agree with you it's a little bit like the women's health strategy isn't it so pleased to see the women's health strategy published is it going to make a difference time will tell and that's the hard part really is you know we want to see that these things happen but will they yeah, I mean, this, you know, I'm currently working in the NHS and it's a real, stru- you know, services are very, very, very kind of staff, you know, staff morale is low, just staffing levels are low. It's it's hard to see how they would implement such 
and such much needed services but when we actually can't even run the services we've already got it, yeah. I mean I, I don't know I don't know the answer but I think the recommendations are are not unreasonable that's the that's the that's the thing as well a lot of these are just very simple things that we should be doing anyway yeah and let's cross everything and really hope that it happens because it's really needed right so before you go we can't let you go without talking about your book tell me about your book because I am so excited to read it um so it's a memoir um and it's my story of professionally working as a midwife in busy London hospital um but also whilst going through infertility and then the loss of my twin Cecil and Wilfred so it's kind of that intertwining of the personal and the professional which I think is just a really interesting contrast really it really is because I'm sure the irony of being a midwife yourself and this happening to you is not lost on you at all no but actually there are so many midwives out there who are going through loss and infertility if you think midwives are pretty much all women like I'm mm-hmm. sure there is very few male midwives um, and then we've got you know if we think that one in six people experience infertility one in four experience baby loss that is a huge proportion of the workforce um, but at the same time again like it just really isn't spoken about so and also I also wanted to acknowledge like people who are doing jobs which are in air quotes triggering so even and that could be anything like midwives gynae nurses pediatric doctors nursery nurses you know school teachers anyone that's doing a job where you're very much faced with that thing that is out of your grasp I wanted to give a voice to totally so are you hoping that readers of your book will come from a mixture of professionals who want to perhaps get a greater understanding of pregnancy loss to to help them with the empathy within the workplace but also for individuals that are going through this to offer them some support is that the kind of idea behind the book yeah I wanted to provide support for people who are living through it because I found reading other people's stories immensely helpful but yeah you're right I really because there's a big chapter in the book about language and how as professionals we need to be much more considered with our language and 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 absolutely guilty of this myself so I'm not saying that I'm perfect but unless someone teaches it to you how do you learn because if you are brought up in a workforce where it's really common to use certain phrases and you never questioned it because that's what everyone else is doing then you know until you until someone teaches you that that's not okay then you're going to keep on doing it and so I learned through my own very sad experiences and so I need to share that with other professionals so that we can make the services better for patients that's I've learned more from being a patient than I have from being a professional Amazing. Yeah, I can completely understand that. And, and like you say, it's it's it's, a, it's kind of OK to get it wrong as long as we're willing to say, I don't know how to say it. Please help me. Um, and I think that's that's the difference, isn't it? I mean, I even now get things wrong, like hold my hand up like no one is perfect. Okay. I don't want anyone to think that I'm like some sort of, you know, perfect practitioner because there is no perfect practitioner. But I think and and Kate if you're if you're signed up to the NMC code which we all are and you know uh, being a reflective practitioner so looking back at your work and thinking how can I do this better going forward because one bad experience doesn't make you a bad practitioner like if you said something wrong once it doesn't make you a bad person and so it's just about learning from your mistakes and learning from our patients yeah and you know that and that's really interesting because the amount of people that I hear from that say 
my, the nurse said this to me or the doctor said this to me and it was really insensitive. And it, it is hard, isn't it, to hear that inf- that those words used when you're grieving or you're, you're maybe grieving the loss of your fertility or a loss of your genetics or a baby loss. And then you hear some some words said to you that are that you feel are inappropriate and often it's actually the clinician is just so used to using that that terminology and probably doesn't think that it's triggering or hurtful but actually it's it's maybe about actually holding those people accountable and saying telling them do you know what that was really hurtful go and read Sophie's book (laughs) to understand more and I think that's something that we definitely all should be doing so when's the book out uh 31st of August which we're timing this podcast to go out around that time. So go and find Sophie's book. Where can we find it, Sophie? Uh, Amazon, Waterstones, all good publishing outlets. It's, uh, yeah, please pre-order. Absolutely, pre-order if this comes out beforehand, but it's there and um, I will be in the queue waiting to get it myself for sure because it's. I think it's a must-read for anyone going through infertility, pregnancy loss, or any professionals listening, you need to read it too. Thank you, Sophie, so much for coming and talking to us today. And, you know, I really appreciate it. I know that the conversation is difficult. It's going to be, it's difficult for you to talk about. It's difficult for me to talk about um, with you. It's, it's, I know it's going to be really difficult for people listening to hear. And, you know, if you are listening and this has been triggering, then just please take some time um, because we know it's difficult and hard. And don't forget to reach out to anyone to support you can always reach out to me I know Sophie you're amazing you talk to loads of people on social media as well so please feel free to reach out to anyone any of us anyone else to support you I think Sophie has really demonstrated that you're absolutely not alone so thank you so much for talking to us really appreciate it it's been great having you on always great to talk to you Sophie um thank you oh thanks so much for having me So I know that that episode was probably difficult to listen to for many of you. Um, We don't want to shy away from it, though, because it is so important to raise awareness about infertility, pregnancy loss, the correct language, as Sophie was talking about, how the wider family are also impacted when it comes to pregnancy loss and infertility. So I'm not going to shy away from the topic. So I'm not going to make any apologies for that. However, as we mentioned, if it was hard listening to this today, then please take some time for yourself. Um, Breathe. Know that you're not alone and do go and find support. And as I mentioned, I'm here if anyone wants to reach out for some support. So is Sophie. There is plenty of support avenues out there for you. So don't don't sit in silence, don't sit not being able to cope with your situation on your own. But thank you for listening to that. I know it was hard, but thank you for getting through it. Um, Go and get Sophie's book. I literally cannot wait. Um, And like I said, this episode is going to be going out around the time that it's available. So go and buy on Amazon, because I think it's a must to help raise awareness and improve our understanding. Thanks for listening. We will be back in two weeks with another fantastic episode. So make sure you are ready and listening because I'll be in your earlugs before you know it. All right. Bye for now.
please do rate and review the podcast as it's brilliant for other people to know what you think. Even just hitting follow or subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast really helps other people know it's worth a listen. Also follow Kate on her Insta, which is Your Fertility Nurse. And if you'd like to book in a consultation with Kate to understand more about your fertility and reproductive health, visit yourfertilityjourney.com. 